Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. On this episode, we'll first be covering the topic of crony capitalism. Cronyism is everywhere, affecting industries, entrepreneurs, and customers, and weakening the market. So what is crony capitalism, and how does it compromise real capitalism? Economist Anne Rathbone Bradley comes onto the show to explain how cronyism affects the market and what we can do to combat it. Afterwards, Acton's director of research, Samuel Gregg, comes onto the show to talk about his new book, Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization. Gregg lays out what he believes defines the West, how the disintegration of reason and faith has caused the West to decline, and what we can do to reclaim it. Don't forget that if you want to learn more about the topics in this episode and read any of the articles or the books mentioned, I've linked a lot of resources for you in the show notes, and those are posted at blog.acton.org. Today, I'm joined by Anne Rathbone Bradley, who's the current academic director and George and Sally Mayer Fellow at the Fund for American Studies, as well as the vice president of economic initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. Anne, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Caroline. And you will be speaking on the costs of cronyism at an upcoming conference Acton will be hosting in Dallas. And I thought this offered a great excuse to bring you onto the show to talk about cronyism. You know, because here at Acton, we obviously talk a lot about economics. And I think it's important that we define our terms and make distinctions between free market capitalism and crony capitalism. To start from the beginning, instead of going directly to how you would define cronyism, I want to ask you first, what are the defining characteristics of free market capitalism? Oh, that's a great way to start the conversation. The defining characteristics of capitalism and free markets, I think, are synonymous with capitalism. They're the way that we allocate scarce resources, and we do that through prices, property rights, and profits and losses. So capitalism defined in an economic way is the private ownership of the means of production. And so in a free market capitalist society, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see decentralized ownership where entrepreneurs from farmers to tech startups to, you know, lemonade stands, these decisions about how to allocate resources through markets are being made by individuals. And those individuals who have those ideas have to respond to what they think consumers want. And that is mitigated, whether they're right or wrong, by profits and losses. And so in a market system, when entrepreneurs make mistakes, whether they can't get the price right or they can't get the cost right or whatever it may be, the losses that they feel that they suffer are going to be driven by consumers. So one of the characteristics is that you have a lot of consumer choice. Consumers are really driving the bus in terms of what's being produced, when and how. How is the free exchange between entrepreneurs or business owners and consumers like you were just talking about, how is that exchange thwarted in crony capitalism? Well, if, if it's okay, I'd like to start with the total opposite side of the spectrum before I answer that, which is a socialist economy is one where you have public ownership of the means of production. So rather than this decentralized framework where prices are guiding entrepreneurs, profits and losses are signaling to them, you know, either continue or stop, you don't have any of that. 
In fact, socialism is defined by government ownership of the means of production. So you don't have private property rights to the same extent, and you don't have entrepreneurial energy or startups that are kind of uh, being driven by consumers. So those are the two opposite sides of the spectrum. Crony capitalism, and I, I really, if I can say this too, I don't love that phrase. Um, I think capitalism is capitalism, the way we've defined it, and socialism is socialism. And then, of course, you're, you you know, kind of there's a range in between. I think cronyism can be, you know, steps and deviations away from true capitalism. And so what you see there are where firms um, lobby for political protection or political privilege in economics, we talk a lot about monopolies. We don't like them. And the reason we don't like monopolies, which is a single seller, um, or oligopolies, which are a few sellers, we don't like that because consumers don't have as much power to direct the entrepreneurs. Um, they still have some power, but they don't have as much, which is why we like competition. What cronyism tends to do is to reward monopolistic privilege to those who have the resources to lobby for it. And so it creates a very unjust and unfair society in which kind of those who have the most money lobby to keep it, lobby for privilege, that privilege further secures monopolistic profits, and it kind of keeps out other people who can't afford to play that game. You used the words unjust and unfair there when you were speaking. What kind of conditions does this create then? Uh, how does this affect real people, real business owners and customers in a very practical way? Can you give us some tangible um, examples of this that we've seen? Absolutely. So I think one of the most egregious, but that's being really um, publicized, and so I, I think we're getting some traction on it, is occupational licensing. In this example, you will find that it really hurts the people um, who don't have a lot of resources the most. And that's what I mean by the unjust and unfair aspect. One example I can give you is hair braiding. This tends to afflict um, the, the cronious restrictions, that is, affect African-American women who are typically the owners of, you know, hair braiding businesses. And they often do this out of their own homes. When you braid hair, you don't um, use scissors, you don't use chemicals. So it's very hard to make a public safety type of argument that we need to regulate this in a significant way. Uh, but that's exactly what we're seeing. Uh, an increasing number of states are requiring cosmetology school. In some cases, 1,200 hours of cosmetology school to braid hair in your home. Who do we think are the likely candidates who would be lobbying for these types of regulations? Well, it's not the hair braiders. Uh, it's actually the people who own salons because they don't want the competition. For example, if I own a hair braiding business in my home, I may be able to charge significantly less because I don't have a brick-and-mortar built business. Um, and so the salons don't want this type of competition. So what they do is they lobby their state legislatures for licenses, and they do it in the name of public safety, but it's truly not keeping anyone safe in this example. And what it's doing is it's harming small entrepreneurs. When we think about inequality and the problems of inequality, I think this is really one of them because it takes 
job opportunities off the table. You know, I mean, if I can't afford to open my own salon or to go to cosmetology school, then braiding hair in my, you know, kitchen or in my basement might be a great alternative and a way for me to be an entrepreneur, to provide income for my family and to provide a service for my community. And now we've taken that opportunity off the table. So this is this is where the unfairness, I think, in the it's an unjust society that does this because it harms the people that we say we want to help the most. And this is widespread, correct? I mean, we see this in all sorts of industries. Um, we see it with regulatory capture in education, in healthcare. Um, when we talk about this problem, it's extremely pervasive, correct? It is pervasive. It's not just occupational licensing, as you mentioned. It's other types of regulations for owning and operating businesses. And as those go up, what we should expect is that um, entrepreneurship will decline, technological innovation will decline. And you're absolutely right. Where we need it most, two sectors I think you mentioned are education and healthcare. These are sectors of our society that need a lot of help, a lot of innovation, a lot of dynamism. And where you see regulatory capture, where you see monopolistic privilege, where you see the state engaging in these types of activities that prohibits competition in the supply of those resources, then these results are very predictable. They're not what we want, but they're predictable. And it's ironic, too, that you know we refer to it sometimes as crony capitalism, because I think that is so oxymoronic, <laughs> because I would define capitalism like you did at the beginning as the free exchange between two parties. And after the exchange, both parties benefit. But in crony capitalism, we see that usually only one party benefits, um, and that's federal or state government. And, you know, on top of that, even the business that might be lobbying for regulations that they think will protect them in the future, really just keep them from being able to participate in healthy competition and increase the quality of the goods and services that they provide to their customers. So really on a, on a very widespread scale, it, it creates a negative impact. Agreed. Um, and, and you're right. The people that are lobbying for these protections are doing so because of their view of the short run. But honestly, nobody knows what the long run holds. And so I think it can harm them in the future because they have no way, especially in technology and things like this, we have no way to really know what's going to be going on in those markets in the next 20 years. Um, and so I think it just adds a sluggishness to innovation and that harms everyone um, in the long run. We're all worse off in a society that can't advance technologically as fast as possible. Um, and I think the rich are shielded from this in a way that people at the bottom of the income distribution are not, but we should be worried about it on a societal level. I think you're absolutely right. We're going to move on in conversation to kind of a little bit of a different way of looking at this issue and talk about everyone's favorite subject, which is Trump. <laughs> um, I would say... In part, Trump's election was probably spurred on by um, support in a populist wave that was also driven in part by people being fed up 
to some extent with the effects of cronyism, whether that's income inequality, bailouts for big business, you know, regulations and licensing laws like we've been talking about. But I, I think it's kind of funny because I think that he's trying to fix some of the problems with protectionism, with tariffs, which I would argue are also cronyist in nature. Would you would you say the same thing? Absolutely agree. Uh, I I teach a lot of international trade and international economic um, policy classes. And so the Trump administration, sadly, has been giving us a lot to talk about. And I say that because you're right. It's a lot about um, protectionism, about the problem, I think, with the perspective of Trump's international trade policies are that they view international trade as a zero-sum game. What do I mean by that? Uh, if America wins by, you know, kind of uh, having more exports than China, um, then then we're better. And that's that's just such a shallow understanding of how trade works. So this is really taking us all the way back to Economics 101. And it brings up a point you mentioned earlier, which is that all of this has to be voluntary. If we both agree to the exchange, then we're both better off. Uh, that's the way that trade works, um, and that's what we can observe. So if I choose to, to buy a Japanese car instead of an American car, then all we can assume is that if that choice was voluntary, I prefer the Japanese car. Now, do Americans lose when I buy a Japanese car? Not at all, um, because trade should be based on comparative advantage. Um, and it's fully reasonable to believe that other countries will have different comparative advantages than we do. The other thing in particular with the Trump policies is that they are largely oriented towards China. And I would say this, um, trade wars are, are easily wars we should never fight. I think they don't bring any net benefit to consumers, either American consumers or Chinese consumers. Uh, and I think what we should look at is China is a country with 1.3 billion people who 45 years ago all were immiserated by uh, abject poverty. What has brought our fellow Chinese human beings out of that poverty, many of them, um, is trade, which allows them to be more productive and allows them to purchase things rather than make them. Uh, and that is essentially liberating, and it allows us to do really what God created us to do. So I think that these ideas are misplaced. I think that they're based on the idea that um, we need to always export more than we import. I think that's faulty economics, but I think you're right. It sounds good politically. And if you think about what Trump was doing to, when he won the election, um, he was talking to groups of people who were traditional Democrats, but who were worried about losing their jobs to trade with China. So when you promise things like, you know, we're going to make sure we keep American jobs in America and not outsourced, that sounds good to somebody who's worried about in the short run losing their jobs. So I understand why these policies sometimes have a lot of support. But it's really part of why Acton exists and why we do what we do, which is we want to help people understand the economic way of thinking. Because when they understand that, they can agitate for the right policies, not policies that just sound good, but policies that do good. And I think the, this protectionism is absolutely a form of cronyism, as you said, because in the short term, who's lobbying for it? American manufacturers who don't want to lose out 
in the short run to China. But the the longer side of that story is that those American manufacturers do other things that they're better at doing. And so it's not like when we buy something from China where we used to buy it from the United States that that United States company goes out of business. Actually, they find something to do that they're better at doing. So trade makes us all better. It makes us all more productive. I think we just need to talk about that more. We're running short on time, but I have two more questions that I just, I really want to pose to you before I close out. So my first is a little interesting. Earlier this year, two political scientists named Michael C. Munger and Mario Villarreal Diaz, they wrote an essay called The Road to Crony Capitalism, which is a play on Friedrich Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, in which they basically posed the question whether or not capitalism always has a tendency to devolve into crony capitalism. They ask if real capitalism exists, is it sustainable or does capitalism in a democracy always devolve into corporatist cronyism? And they also earlier in the piece draw a parallel between when democratic socialists or people who advocate for democratic socialist policies in America look at other countries and say, well, that's not real socialism, to when advocates for free market capitalism look at some cronyist policies that we have here and say, well, that's not real capitalism. How would you Mm -hmm. respond to that? I think it's a really important point. And the the notion of markets that are situated in a democracy, I think crony capitalism is always something we have to worry about there. Because, and it's the democracy that's the problem, not the markets, which I'm really not trying to just play a semantics game there. I think it, it matters. I think if you had markets that, to, that were situated in some other system, much more decentralized political system, then you might not have the looming threat of corporatism and cronyism. But I do think that market economies that are situated in democracies have this looming threat of corporatism because it's built into the system in the sense that if GE can lobby policymakers to protect GE and that and both of those parties to that negotiation secure rents and benefits that they want, then we as economists should predict that that's going to happen. So to me, what we need to redo, what we need to reform is the entanglement between political and economic systems. And what I worry about in the current political climate is we're not really talking about that. In fact, if you listen to, and this is more on the democratic side, but if you listen to some of the talking points, it's actually going to increase government oversight of private firms, which I think will make the problem far worse than it already is. So we need to really be on guard about this. I think their worries are, are, are right. But I don't think it's a problem of markets. What I think it is, it's a problem of people. People are always going to be people. And people have the tendency towards sin and greed. And so we need to mitigate against that by protecting those institutions. Do you think that the first step in untangling the relationship between government and big business is to just talk about it? Because, you know, it seems like it's so much a part of our business and affects so many industries. How do we how do we scale it back? Mm-hmm. This is a good question. And I want to end on an optimistic note. So what I will say is that what I'm excited about here is that we're talking about it now. And I think this is a real bridge between people on the left and people on the right politically. 
Because if you listen to some people on the left, they are railing against this too. They don't want large corporate interests driving politics, driving lobbying, driving rent-seeking in America. And I think that people who are um, advocates of a free and virtuous society say the same thing. So to me, we need to raise awareness. People don't lay their head on their pillow at night and worry about occupational licensing. But if we care about the poor, if we care about people at the bottom of the income distribution, we should lay our head on our bed and worry about this and, and want to do something about it. So I think we need to talk more. I think we need to raise awareness. And I think we need to talk to, you know, bring the left and the right together and have them agree that we disagree with this and then fight together against it. I think that could be very powerful. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Before we jump into the next segment, I wanted to thank you for listening. Our podcast team here at Acton loves bringing you a new episode of Acton Line every Wednesday, and it has been so much fun to watch this podcast grow a lot recently. But I know that the growth of this podcast also relies on you. If you like this podcast, you can help us reach even more people. You can do this by leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with anyone you think would be interested in learning more about religion and liberty. Act In Line is available on any of the usual podcast directories like iTunes and Google Play, and we're now on Spotify and even YouTube. Now back to the show. Hello, I'm Reverend Ben Johnson, Managing Editor of Religion and Liberty, our print publication, as well as our transatlantic website at Acton.org. I'm speaking today with Sam Gregg, who is the Director of Research at the Acton Institute. We're discussing his new book, Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization. You can get it at Amazon.com. Dr. Gregg, thank you for joining us. Father Ben, it's good to be with you. So I can see at least Two, if not all three of these titles in your book would trigger certain members of our potential listening audience. First of them is Western civilization. What do you mean by Western civilization? Well, of course, that's one of the things that people often debate, not whether they, not just whether they think it's good or not, but also what constitutes Western civilization. And one of the things I do right at the beginning is define Western civilization in the following terms. First of all, I think it's about rational inquiry in search of truth. The second thing I think it's about is this idea of freedom or liberty, but not just liberty to make choices, but also liberty in this highest sense of what you might call freedom for excellence, that our freedom is directed by our reason towards higher goods, higher goals that make us more fully human. But the third thing I think which is distinctive about Western civilization is that It really does rest upon this integration of reason and faith that essentially was forged by Christianity. And one of the reasons I say that is because I suggest that when reason and faith get separated from each other in the context of Western history, then we see what I call pathologies of faith and pathologies of reason start to take root. Because if you look at the history of the West, obviously there's some wonderful achievements that are very much unmatched. But at the same time, there's some terrible things that have happened. The two world wars, the Holocaust, the gulags, slavery, etc. And I basically argue that if you want to understand these things, you need to understand that in many respects they reflect pathologies of faith and pathologies of reason. 
So that's what I understand Western civilization to be. Rational inquiry in search of truth, a particular conception of freedom, but also this idea that reason and faith walk hand in hand and that they in turn rest upon a certain conception of the nature of God. That God is not pure, just pure will. That God is not a big cosmic teddy bear who hugs us and tells us how wonderful we are. But rather that God is, in addition to being divine love, God is also divine reason. The Greek word for this is logos. And if you understand God as having the qualities of logos, of having the characteristics of being divine reason, that that means you understand faith in a particular way. It means you understand reason in a particular way. It means you understand how reason and faith relate to each other in a particular way. And it means, I think, you get to the sense, the essence of what Western civilization is about. So when our conception of God gets distorted, when we start thinking that God is just pure will, or we start thinking that God is like a sentimental teddy bear, things start to go wrong in the West very quickly. You've said a few times God is not pure will. What do you mean by that, by will? What I mean is the sense that God can't be reduced to being an entity that simply wills things, that doesn't reason about what they're choosing, a God that doesn't think or reflect or is some, somehow whose, whose choices operate beyond and outside reason. In theological terms, this is called voluntarism, in which the primary characteristic that's ascribed to God is the character of will. You see this uh, emerge in certain, with some Christian scholars in the medieval period, but I think if you want to understand a great deal of contemporary Islam, particularly Sunni Islam, and even more specifically, if you want to understand Islamic jihadism, you need to understand that the conception of God that is operative in that world is one of pure will, a will that could command human beings to do barbarous things. So that's what I mean when I talk about this conception of God as pure will, voluntarism, that's what I have in mind. Many religious uh, listeners might think that reason smacks of modernism or infidelity, but uh, you bring down, down in your book that ratio fides, reason and faith, are integrally conjoined. You also, in the book, mention the different enlightenments. Uh, for many people, the enlightenment is simply Voltaire or David Hume and his uh, extreme skepticism or John Stuart Mill. How is it that uh, Protestants and Catholics have uh, taken part in even the enlightenment heritage of philosophy? Well, if you go back to, for example, the person who is most identified as the figure of the Enlightenment, of course, is Isaac Newton. But Isaac Newton was not a deist. Isaac Newton was not an atheist. Isaac Newton was a Christian. Now, he had some heterodox views on things like the Trinity, for example. But there's no question that he understood himself to be a Christian. And we also know that some of his writings were actually directed at refuting deism, refuting mechanistic explanations of the causes of human nature, the causes of the universe. And if you go through the 18th century, what you discover very quickly is that, first of all, most Enlightenment thinkers were not Voltaire, were not Rousseau, were not, as you mentioned, David Hume. Most Enlightenment thinkers, particularly in the Anglo-American world, were religious people. They believed in God. Uh, most of them considered themselves to be Christians. 
And they were interested in religion, not just in terms of the sociology of religion, but also in terms of, I guess you might call, natural theology. I think there's a tendency among many, many Christians to simply dismiss the Enlightenment as being hopelessly modernistic, hopelessly anti-God, hopelessly anti-Christian, etc. But if you look closely at the different Enlightenments, you discover that's not true. You find, for example, in mid-century French Enlightenment thought, there's plenty of Christians, plenty of Catholics who are engaging in this way of thinking. Uh, if you go to uh, Britain, you go to particularly to the Scottish Enlightenment, Scottish Enlightenment is a whole separate phenomena. Most of the people involved in it are Christians. In fact, a good number of them are Presbyterian ministers, ministers of the Church of Scotland. When you go across the Atlantic to North America and you look at the American Enlightenment, well, yes, there are people like Jefferson and Franklin who clearly were not Christian in, the, in any orthodox sense at all. But most of the people, most of the, the ministers, most of the men of religion, most of the clerics in the North American colonies before and after the American Revolution were deeply religious people and who were also deeply interested in Enlightenment thought. And I think so this is important because what it means is that there are schools of Enlightenment thought that Christians can deal with, they can do business with, in which they can even learn some things and then there are trends in Enlightenment thought which are clearly anti-Christian and which do, in some respects, reflect some of the pathologies of faith and pathologies of reason, which we talked about before. So Christianity isn't mere obscurantism and uh, the secular city isn't entirely closed off to uh, dialogue with uh, faith, in other words. So right. I think that's true. And one of the things that the Enlightenment did was to, in many respects, bring to light some important freedoms that needed more attention and which I'm not sure Christianity on its own would necessarily have arrived at. The two examples I use in the book are religious liberty. I think that Locke is, John Locke is someone who one can be very critical of, but at the same time, there's much in his thought, which I think is quite useful. And his particular explanation of the nature of religious liberty, I think, is very important. It's the same with the emphasis you find in some Enlightenment thinkers upon economic freedom. You see people like Adam Smith bringing this to light in a new and particular way. And again, I'm not sure whether Christianity by itself would have necessarily have done so. So the notion that religion, people of faith, are somehow close off to religion, uh, to reason, is simply nonsense. I mean, yes, faith can become fideism in the sense of hostility to reason or seeing faith as opposed to reason. But uh, for the most part, I think it's true to say people of faith, and when I talk about faith, I mean the faiths of the West and the two faiths of the West are Judaism and Christianity. Reason is operative all the way through these two religions. Uh, when it comes to the world of, of reason, I think it's true to say that the phenomena of people of reason thinking that reason is somehow opposed to faith or that reason is going to triumph over faith or that reason and faith are completely opposed to each other, that's a relatively new position. And I don't think you can, you can look at that and say, well, that's purely an Enlightenment product. Because if you go back to the various Enlightenments, it's very clear that most Enlightenment thinkers did not think that way about the world. 
One thing Enlightenment thinkers had in common with the adherents of the two historic uh, faiths of the West, Christianity and Judaism, is that they had insights that were universally binding upon all of humanity. In time, this was eclipsed by uh, the idea of exalting the one and only virtue that's still recognized in the West, which is toleration of every form of truth and the idea that perhaps there is no truth. In your book, you make a claim that could be startling to some listeners that tolerance eventually leads to tyranny. How is it that an unnatural exaltation of tolerance leads to a destruction of tolerance? Well, the notion of tolerance is based on the idea that we need to have the freedom to engage in rational inquiry without the fear that our research or our reflection and the conclusions at which we arrive will result in violence being done to us. That's the purpose of tolerance. The purpose of tolerance is not, is not pluralism for its own sake. The purpose of tolerance is not even, to use a phrase, that much overused phrase today, diversity. That's not the purpose of tolerance. The purpose of tolerance is to enable us to seek truth free of the fear that violence will be used against us on the basis of the conclusions that we reach. What we have now, however, is that when you detach when you detach tolerance from truth, then you start to see any truth claim as somehow threatening civil order. So if you say, I'm a Jew and I believe that Judaism is the true religion, in a world in which tolerance and truth have been separated from each other, you can't help but see to tolerance in terms of we may not allow people to make truth claims because truth claims are dangerous. We must shut down anyone who claims that their faith or their philosophy or their position is the true faith or the true philosophy or the true position. So that's how tolerance comes to be used as a weapon to basically shut down discussion. We see this all the time when any, anyone makes a truth claim or we say, I think Orthodox Christianity is the most true, the most faith, the most, the, the most faith with the strongest claims to being the wholeness of truth. And people are told, well, you can't say that. That's intolerant. And it's, it's not intolerant. It's simply a statement of truth. So tolerance exists. The true purpose of tolerance is to create an, an arena in which people can safely debate things rigorously, firmly, uh, even contentiously, without the fear that someone is going to say, well, you may not say that because truth itself has become a danger to freedom. And I think when tolerance is used in that way, that reflects, first of all, a lack of confidence that there is truth. I think it usually reflects a sense that Anyone who has a claim to truth is a dangerous person. But also, I think it, it fundamentally devalues the idea that the human mind is made for seeking the truth. So when you have doubts about that, you cannot help but drift in the direction of seeing tolerance as basically a weapon used to shut down discussion of important subjects, sometimes difficult subjects, but subjects which nonetheless should be discussed, and which for a long time have always been discussed in the context of Western civilization. 
So culture essentially dethroned the Judeo-Christian understanding of truth claims, and now the only truth claim is that there is no truth. Ludwig von Mises spoke about this a bit. He called it polylogism, the idea that different sets of rationality are inherent to different groups of people. In other words, they all live their truth. The Nazis applied it to genetic groups. The Marxists applied it to economic classes. Now we have the intersectionality movement to combine them both and grind the gossamer threads of human understanding even finer. You mentioned in your book that uh, creation, freedom, justice, and faith are the four great goods that have been produced by Western civilization. I won't ask you about that. I'll ask our listeners to get the book and check that out for yourself. But in the very end, you close on a note of hope. A lot of reasonable people who believe in faith and uh, are struggling for Western civilization would end up hopeless. Can you tell us your vision for hope for bringing us back to our inheritance? Well, two things. One is most books about Western civilization today are either books that say the West is bad, the West was always bad, the West should go away. The second set of books tend to be along the lines of Western civilization was a wonderful project, but it's done, it's finished, because no one believes in it anymore. My book takes a different approach. It basically says there is a thing called the West. It has distinct characteristics that there's no going back to the past. There's no going back to an imaginary past to somehow recreate a different world, a new world, to create a sort of neo-medieval world. The point, however, is that there are ways in which we can look back and see how the West has reintegrated a concern for faith and a concern for reason. And I use the American Republic of the late 18th century, early 19th century as one example of this. Now, I'm not underestimating how difficult it is, but it does seem to me that human beings are made for truth, that faith and reason are part of who we are, that these are things we simply cannot escape, and that there are ways to put these things back together. And I don't want to underestimate how difficult that is, but one of the geniuses of Western civilization is this capacity for renewal, for rebirth, if you like, by going back to understanding the nature of God, by deepening our understanding of how the two faiths of the West have integrated reason and faith, and on that basis, developing these four theses of the West, creation, faith itself, freedom and justice, in ways that reflect an appreciation that God is love, but God is also logos as well. If you get those things right, if you get your understanding of God right, you get your understanding of human beings right, because you're understanding of human beings right, you have a fairly good chance of enabling the West to recover and become more fully what it really is. You're hearing insights from the book Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization from Wignery Gateway Books. The author, acting director of research, Dr. Samuel Gregg. You can get the book from Amazon.com or from our own bookshop, shop.acton.org. Dr. Gregg, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Father Ben, and it's great to talk with you. Thank you for listening today. If you're interested in learning more about the topics in today's show, I've linked all the articles, books, and more that were mentioned in the show notes, and those are published at blog.acton.org. Here at Acton, our podcast team is working hard to make a great show for you every week, but we couldn't do it without you. Help us make an even better podcast and reach us at actonline at acton.org. This episode is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel. 